Take your Bible today, if you would, and join me in the book of Psalm, chapter number 86. Psalm chapter 86. This past week, it was my privilege to pray with one of the men in our church. As he was praying, I had the distinct thought that came into my mind that he was talking to someone that he knew quite well. The words that came from his lips and the tone of his voice and the manner of his conversation was that he had just picked up a conversation with someone that he knew quite well. It was obvious that I was there and present during that time of prayer, but it was also quite obvious that I was not the most important person involved in or a part of that conversation. He knew the one that he was speaking to. And what I came away with is even though I was present, there was someone in his presence that had at that moment in time his undivided attention. His undivided attention. Okay, let me ask a, uh, a question, and I don't mean to cause any controversy between married couples, but how many of you are men in this room that are married? Please raise your hand. Okay, lots of married men in this room. Okay. Have you ever had a scenario like this happen? Have you ever been watching football before? Okay, already you know where this is going. Okay. Have you ever been watching football and your wife comes into the room and starts having a conversation? And then you, you participate with, uh-huh. And then a few minutes later, yeah. And then your wife says to you, you have not been listening to a word I've been saying. How many of you are with me so far? Okay. Okay. Now, some of you are like, you're not going to admit it. All right. You're sitting there stiff as a board right now. Okay. So your wife says to you, you've not been listening to a word I've been saying. Now, men, if you're not married... God has wonderfully given men a 30-second rewind, okay? Now, you could have been watching whatever, but she says, you have not been listening to a word I've been saying. And you say, oh, yes, I have. <laughs> and then you repeat the last 30 seconds. And then she may say, now, I've only read about this, just so you know, okay? <laughs> and then she says... You may have heard what I was saying, but you were not listening. Okay. It, it's also true. God has not made men to multitask when it comes to football and conversation. Okay. The, the psalmist that we're about to look at, he, he finds that God has his undivided attention the title of my message today is, When God Gets Your Attention. And you'll notice that I didn't say how God gets your attention. That is for another sermon. But I suspect that many listening right now, there are those that are saying, through circumstances, through life, through, through stages or ages, through preaching, God has my attention. If that is the case, then 
Notice how the psalmist in our passage, who I believe is David, begins to pray. And then notice what he begins to see when God has his attention. Your Bibles are open to Psalm chapter 86. Let's begin in verse number one, where the Bible records, Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy, O thou my God. Save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. When God gets your attention, let's ask a question then. What do you see when God gets your attention? When God has orchestrated circumstances in your life, whatever they may be, and now it's as if God is in clear focus He has your, at that moment in time, undivided attention. What is it that we begin to see when God has your attention? The first thing that I think the psalmist records for us is this. The first thing we see when God gets our attention, the first thing you see is, number one, the magnitude of your needs. The magnitude of your need. Do you know, often we go through life rather glibly. We, we kind of skip along, not fully understanding what is it that I so desperately, first and foremost, primarily need. Again, in verse number one of Psalm 86, bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me. Now notice what he says. Why am I talking to you, God, with such a focus For I am poor and needy. Lord, I start to see the magnitude of my need. You have my attention. And I'm just saying, Lord, what I know you already know, what you already know, but I now realize, God, I am poor. I have needs and you're the only one that can supply. As this psalm opens, it's as if the floodlights are turned on full blast, exposing David's need, which he then comes to readily acknowledge. Yes, God has his attention, and he got it by revealing through circumstances unknown to us, David's great need. As you start to read through this psalm, we get get an insight into a focus that is David's. And guess what the focus is? David. Many times we think, well, I I just can't focus on myself. Well, we don't see that consistently seen through Scripture. Where David begins is, he begins with David. God has his attention. And now God starts to reveal things about David that David has to see. Notice what he does. When we just do this, this brief look through the psalm, notice the focus of attention. Verse 1, bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, 
for I am poor and needy. Verse 2, preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Verse 3, be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer. Attend to the voice of my supplication. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Verse 11, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Verse 12, I will praise thee, O Lord, my God. With all my heart, I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me. And thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. O God, the proud are risen against me. And the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul and have not set thee before them. O turn unto me and have mercy upon me. Give thy strength unto thy servant and save the soul of thine handmaid. Verse 17, show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed because thou, Lord, hast helped me and comforted me. In this psalm, no less than 35 times, the psalmist inserts himself into the prayer. Do you know when God gets your attention, do you know the first thing we start to see as recorded in this psalm is the magnitude of our own need. He's saying, in essence, it's me. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Isn't it amazing how we work hard to try to hide our need rather than acknowledging that which is true about all of us? We are needy people. I think one of the challenges is we oftentimes look around us and it's as if we see the highlight reel of everyone else's life. Social media certainly is a contributor to this. We see everybody's best. We see their edited moments. We see those things that are, that are not the photos that were thrown away. They are not those things that are discarded. They are the product of something that may have actually taken some time to finally get everything just right. I mean, we've all done it, right? I mean, I mean, haven't we all taken the picture where, where we, we wait for that moment in time to be captured and our faces are beaming and as soon as the picture is taken, the smile that creased our face is no longer there and it's back to the reality of life. David is king. He's a respected king. He's this sweet psalmist. He's the one who talks to God. He's the shepherd of Israel. He's the one they sang songs about. He's the mighty warrior. He's the guy that people would leave the comforts of home and dwell in the wilderness protecting David. He's the guy that three of his top mighty men say, David, we heard you whisper about a well that you wanted a water from. And they break through the line of the Philistines to fetch David a little sip of water. This is how respected David is. I mean, if you want anybody's life, don't you want David's life? And what do we see when, when the king, the psalmist, the sweet shepherd, 
What do we see when David starts to reveal the reality of him? We see, wow, this is a needy man. We might expect these words to be penned by someone who's destitute and afflicted and forsaken. And maybe the person that sits outside of the temple walls. And they beg for their daily provision. But we see it from King David. You and I should readily acknowledge that weakness is a part of being human. If you are alive, then you have weaknesses. This is not that which is to be the life of of never a challenge, never a difficulty, never a heartache. Those are part and parcel with being human. And God knows that about us. Psalm 103 verse 14, for he knoweth our frame He remembereth that we are dust. How foolish to think that we shouldn't acknowledge the reality of our weakness. If David had them, if Paul had them, if the apostle Peter had them, if the great saints from days gone by have weaknesses, doesn't it stand to reason that this is the case for you and for me? When God finally gets our attention, he often does does so through the vehicle of difficulty, hardship, suffering, affliction. Trials have the potential to bring about in us a humble acknowledgement of need. And what a blessing that comes when we finally admit them. Isaiah chapter 66, we read in verse number two, but to this man will I look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. The word poor used here in Isaiah, same word that we see in our psalm. Verse number one, I am poor and needy. Do you know what the word means? It means depressed. Depressed in mind. Depressed in circumstances. It means that I am a place of, in a place of affliction. I am weak. I am lowly. And before we move on, Let's take note that this is not some passing need. It's not this momentary recognition of weakness. The psalmist says in verse number three, be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. This literally means I am crying out to you every day, day after day, all day long. God, you have my attention. And when I see you, I start to recognize I have some some incredible needs. Do you know, before we go any further, before we start to see some other things revealed in this psalm, are you and I ready to come before God and say, God, I'm no different than David. I'm, I'm, I'm at a place where you have my attention. And Lord, one of the things you're using to capture my attention is the fact that I have a lot of needs. Where does this psalm take us next? When God gets our attention... The first thing is the the magnitude of our need. But look a little bit further. The second thing we start to see revealed is the magnificence of his care. Okay, I I have a lot of needs. Lord, I I see them everywhere. The, the, The magnitude of my need is staggering. But now I start to also understand the magnificence of his care. As we read, listen to the ongoing acknowledgement of the care and concern from the one to whom the psalmist is praying. Pick it up in verse number five. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. 
In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods, there is none like unto thee, O Lord. Neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Do you know what he starts to detail for us? The magnificence of his care. Have you ever had a need, whether it be financial or medical or, I mean, mechanical, and you knew there was someone who knew the answer? The engine on your car, it's doing something, and, and if you could only get to the right person, that person, have you ever had that before? Like, what, what's going on with this? And some person diagnoses this illness as this, and some person says it's that. But when you finally get to the right person, they say, oh, let me tell you, I know exactly what you have, and here's exactly what you need to do. And sometimes the simplicity of the answer is mind-boggling. It's like, wow, I can't believe that was it. Yeah, that's, that's it. Do you know, when David finally sees his need, he starts to look to his God and he finds that God is the one who has the answer to all of his needs. When you start to think about the one that we call Father, it's not uncommon for us to begin a prayer in, in, in some fashion as is the model prayer given to us. And we'll begin a prayer by saying, Father. Sometimes we use that term throughout the course of our prayer. Father and our God. Let me ask, what kind of a father is revealed to us in the pages of scripture, specifically in this psalm? Well, first of all, we see that he is good. Verse number five again, for thou, Lord, art good. When we begin to interpret God in light of his goodness, our entire perspective begins to change. When we begin to interpret God and all the things that are taking place in our life in light of his goodness, our entire perspective begins to change. It's as if David is praying, God, some bad things are happening in my life right now, but you have the power to take even these wrongs and turn them into something for my good. There's a man named Walter Meyer he told of an event years ago. He, he detailed the shipwreck of a man who was spared and he found himself on an uninhabited land, an uninhabited island. And so he was there and of course the first things that this man began to do was salvage some things from the shipwreck, which he did, a few things that he could salvage. And then he built some humble shelter, a, a little hut that became his, provided shelter from the weather, from, from the storms. It provided some place for those few things that he had salvaged. He was out one day foraging for food and Meyer details that when this man came back late in the day from foraging for food, he comes back and the, the worst of things that he could have imagined had taken place. He sees smoke as he approaches and as he gets closer, he sees that his dwelling place, the little place where he'd stored all of his earthly possessions in, had gone up in smoke and was gone. Of course, he spends a, a night quite depressed and very frustrated and having experienced what he might consider the depth of humanity at that moment. As he awoke the next morning, he did so and looks out over the coastline and he sees a ship that is, that is taken some harbor and there's a small craft coming ashore. 
And as the captain walks on the steps of the shoreline, he says, we saw your distress signal last night and we have come to rescue you. It's interesting that at times God seems to take away everything that we hold on to because he is doing some rescue operation in our own lives. And how often do we, instead of what the ladies sang about today, by, by letting those things that are so important to us go, we seem to hold on to them with some tenacity, doubting the goodness of God. Recently, someone mentioned to me a quote from a pastor who is now in heaven. I believe it was Dr. Shane Lewis who made this quote, although I'm not certain. I think it was him who said, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Yes, bad things do happen. Yet even through the terrible, painful, and hurtful things that come about in this life, God is in fact always and only good. What is the father like that we see in the pages of Psalm 86? The first thing that we see is he is good. What else is he? Well, when we read a little bit further, again in verse number five, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. He is ready to forgive. Do you ever feel like, this is just again in our own thinking not because we've studied this and we've come to biblical conclusions, but have you ever thought after you have sinned, I need a little time before I can actually ask and receive forgiveness. It's almost as if we're saying, I have to do a little Christian penance. Maybe I should afflict my body for the sin of my soul. Maybe there should be some kind of hardship, some kind of, of destitution so that I can finally prove that now I am worthy of forgiveness. Is that the Bible pattern for God? Ready to forgive. F.B. Meyer once wrote, we are blinded by sin and cannot believe that God is ready to forgive we think that we must induce him to forgive by tears, by promises of amendment, religious observances. Oh, clasp this word to your heart. Say it over and over again. Ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. He is ready at this very moment no matter the sin, no matter the gravity, no matter the frequency, he stands at the ready, waiting to forgive. We've often asked God so repeatedly for forgiveness. We think, how dare we ask him again? Once more, F.B. Meyer goes on to say, you have fallen a hundred times and are ashamed to come to God again. It seems too much to expect that he will receive you again. But he will, for he is ready to forgive. You feel that your sin is aggravated because you knew so much better, but it makes no difference to him. He is as ready to forgive you now as when you first came. You are wounding him greatly by doubting him. He is ready, waiting eager 
to forgive. When we start to contemplate the magnificence of his care, what do we see? We see he is good. What else do we see? He is ready to forgive. And what else does verse 5 tell us? And plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. The word plenteous, it, it just means what you'd think. Abundantly, exceedingly great. This is truly the well that you will never exhaust. It will never run dry. Psalm 86 verse 13, for great is thy mercy toward me and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. I, I love the words that this songwriter penned. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patient would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness Christ lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Yes, God is good. He is ready to forgive. And he overflows in mercy to all who will come. So what do you do when God gets your attention? Well, we start to see the magnitude of our need. We see the magnificence of his care. And finally, what do we see? We see the mandate of a unified heart. We see the mandate. There is something here now that David understands. Okay, I start to understand, oh, the magnitude of my need. It is great. I see the magnificence of your care. It's unparalleled. There's nothing that stands close. And now there is a mandate for me. There's something for my future. Okay, God, you have my attention. You got it through this or this or this. Whatever means, throughout this psalm, there are many who've postulated this was what was going on in David's life at the time, but none can say with certainty. I think that's healthy. It's good for us to not know because we might say, well, well my circumstances aren't those. No, 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 no. We just know God has his attention and God may have yours. Okay, now what's the mandate for me? Where do I go from here? When God gets my attention and he puts a floodlight on my need and I experience his fatherly care, I adjust my way with this new freedom to a singleness of heart that wants to follow exclusively him. Look at verses 11 and 12. Teach me thy way, O Lord, 
I will walk in thy truth, unite. If you circle words or highlight them in your Bible, you might want to circle the word unite and then underline the phrase, unite my heart to fear thy name. He goes on and he says, O Lord my God, I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. Let's take note that David is only pleading for help. And then he is recognizing, okay, I need help, and this is what I recognize. Lord, I'm going to ask you for some help. But I'm not going to be so presumptuous as to not say, okay, now teach me what am I supposed to do. It's not like God fix my, pro- fix my problem so I can just go on about my merry way. It's not just, hey, Lord, you see this need? Would you take care of that so I can get right back to business as usual? You have my attention, God. You're talking to me. And God says, okay, I have your attention. And then the psalmist says, okay, now, now here's what I know you're going to have to do because I feel this splintering of my heart. I'm oftentimes pulled in this direction and then I'm pulled in that direction. Do you know, anytime I go through life with this divided heart, I am going to struggle in ways that can't be overcome to please and walk with my God. Why? Well, because my heart wants, sometimes we even say the heart wants what it wants. And do you know what David said? True. So unite my heart so that, it, so that it is singularly yours. When I perform a wedding, I, I almost always, maybe every wedding I've ever done, I have said words like this. I ask a question. It's early in the wedding ceremony. It's really this, this statement of committal to which a couple will respond, I will or I do. Wilt thou have this woman to be thy lawfully wedded wife? Wilt thou love her, keep her, cherish her in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, forsaking, and then I say this, forsaking all others and keep thou only unto her so long as you both shall live. It's an important question. Forsaking all others and keep thou only unto her so long as you both shall live. There really is only one appropriate answer to that question. No one has ever said, she can have most of my heart. Sometimes we might even wonder, well, let's even use your illustration, pastor. I mean, how can I love my wife with my whole heart and, and then say, God, you have my whole heart. I would submit to you that only when God has your whole heart can you rightly love another with your whole heart. See, that that doesn't seem to make sense. When I love God supremely, I can love others deeply. I can love pursuits like, like sports or hobbies or pets or places. I can love pursuits appropriately and can even love myself correctly but I must begin with loving God firstly. God, you have my, as we oftentimes sing, undivided heart, seeking only you. And when I love God first, I can love others right. 
We must understand that we can't love our spouse or our friends or our country or our church or our community correctly until our hearts are singularly and supremely God's. Does God have your attention right now? I don't know what he may be doing or don't presume to know all that he has done, but does God have your attention for some, you, you might even allow the question to roll off from you with little to no effect, but I suspect that there are many who would say, wow, God, you have my attention. Sometimes even in the adversity, the hardship, such as David must have been facing, he talks about the challenges that are about him, the difficulties that are surrounding him, we say, well, well, God, sometimes it seems like you just come in and you scorch my life. It's, it's as if you have taken everything away. How appropriate for them to sing what they sang today. They, they say, in fact, I remember this was years ago and I remember when it took place, when Yellowstone burned over 100 million acres, it was 1.2 million acres, staggering the, the devastation that took place. It was back in the 80s and many people, of course, at the time lamented the, the loss that had occurred and the devastation and how we're not going to be able to enjoy because, because such hardship had taken place in a land that was so beautiful. In fact, a lot of the practices for, for our national parks were such that they were trying to prevent all of these forest fires. And they'd been doing so for years and and finally it caught up and, and it caught fire, 1.2 million acres. There's a tree that, that grows prolifically throughout Yellowstone. In fact, many of the, the, the grand old structures are built from these called the lodgepole pines. Millions of these wonderful pines, these towering structures that in a sense point our attention to things above. Many of them, of course, burnt to the ground. So it's so to me interesting that I read an article that, that said this, it was titled this, Yellowstone Fires, Ecological Blessing in Disguise. Do you know the, the pine cone from these lodgepole pines, they won't open. There's a resin on them that preserves the seed inside for 30 to 50 years and you are two steps ahead of me, you know what opens the opportunity for new growth, the heat of the fire. And so when that fire swept through Yellowstone, something wonderful was happening. The, the people who work the land say, the fire doesn't, doesn't do this, this um, you know, this terrible, just sweeping, just takes it. He says, no, the fire goes down just over the surface takes down that which is growing above, but down beneath, something's happening now. I mean, millions and millions of, of these that had been sealed tightly shut begin to open and germinate and, and new life. The, the people who work the land now say, listen, that which we thought was the worst thing that could happen in our lifetime actually was the blessing in disguise. Maybe God has brought in your life some blessing in disguise. And you feel like it's a scorched earth moment, but God is growing something new. 
Does God have your attention right now? If he does, you probably see the magnitude of your need. You may well see the magnificence of his care. And may we also understand the mandate now of our heart. God, remove those things that may divide me. Unite my heart to fear your name.